Well, grace and peace to you, Christ Church kiddos. I have a joke for you. But before I give you the joke, I have to tell you something. Are you ready? Happy New Year! What? What? <laughs> now, wait a minute. Now, when does New Year's normally happen? Thanksgiving. No! <laughs> when does the New Year happen? January, right? Well, in the church calendar and how we celebrate the story of Jesus, the new year begins with Advent as we begin to anticipate the coming of Jesus. So at church, it's Happy New Year! Yay! So I have a, I have a question for you. Here's my joke. You're going to like this. You ready? What's a cow's favorite holiday? Moo Year's Day. Yay! Now go up to Pastor Amy and tell her Happy New Year as loudly and obnoxiously as you can. Go forth, go forth, go, go. She'll love it. She'll love it. It's good stuff. Well, as we've already said many times this morning, it is the beginning of Advent. It is finally upon us, the new beginning of the church year, a period marked by waiting and anticipation. And in our Wednesday night study, if those of you have been joining us on Wednesdays for the long-expected Jesus group, uh, we've talked about waiting the challenge of it, the potential benefits, but also the downfalls of waiting. Because frankly, some of us are better at waiting than others. Is that true, right? I am not a good waiter, it's true. But as we begin this kind of this waiting and then anticipation for Advent, I have kind of a question for us this morning. And simply, the question is, why? Why do we practice this waiting for the coming of Jesus? Because, uh, sorry to spoiler alert, he already came as a baby 2,000 years ago, right? And so why do we do this whole, we're waiting for Jesus to come because we know he already came. So it's always like we're reenacting this, this pageantry of the Christ child coming year in and year out, right? Every year we do this. But the thing is, Advent means coming. And it isn't just about remembering and symbolically waiting for that baby to come again because we know he already came. But it's also this season in which we look forward with that same anticipation for his second coming. Now think back to when you were a kid. Do you remember those old school kaleidoscopes? You know what I'm talking about? The things you would... So I was making fun of them in the first service like, oh, they're so old. I never had one when I was a kid. There is one in the nursery. Apparently they're still making these devices. They're, oh, they're very cool. They're very cool. So you look into it and you say, oh, wrong end. There you go. Wow. Okay. Sorry about that. You look at it and you see something really cool, like these designs and these colors, and it's super beautiful. It's wonderful, right? But if you turn it just a smidgen, even if you like just jiggle it a little bit, the whole pattern changes. These colors, they shift, and the shapes, they move. And, and so when we look at the season of Advent, when you look at it the first time, just pretend you're looking in the kaleidoscope with me for a second, you see this beautiful image of the first Advent. You know, the stable and the shepherds, and baby Jesus has come, and God has been faithful to his promise to send a savior. And we're filled with gratitude at the beauty of it. And there's all these warm fuzzies. Yay, baby Jesus, right? But then we switch, we, we turn that kaleidoscope ever so slightly and we get a new picture. Uh, not a picture of the past, but a glimpse of the future in which we see somewhere down the road, God keeping his promise to send his Messiah, the second coming, ushering in the kingdom of God for good. And so we are filled with this trusting, waiting, hopeful expectation. And so that's the heart of Advent, is this assurance that because God kept his promise the first time around and sent Jesus as Savior and Redeemer, we can trust that he will keep his promise again to send Jesus at just the right time 
to usher in the kingdom in its fullness. And so that, that's how we've been teaching Advent to Jojo and Jack at home. We have that. It's really cool. We talked about this on Wednesday. We have this really hearty, like made of wood. It's very fancy. Uh, Advent calendar. And there's the little doors, and you put little treasures inside. And so every morning we've been getting it out. We started on the first, because that's when the calendar starts, and said, okay, Jojo and Jack, what's Advent mean? And Jack just goes, like that big Jack Jack grin kind of situation. He, he doesn't have a clue, but he just knows there's chocolate inside. And so he is, he is game. He, whatever you want him to say, he will say it, right? And JoJo, poor thing, poor kid, having two preachers for parents. It's rough, let me tell you. She goes, she goes, God keeps his promises, even if it takes a long time. <laughs> All right, good job. You can have your chocolate. Way to go, right? And so just, yeah. My poor children, two, two preachers for parents. But that is, the, that is the response. That's what we want our kids to remember and to learn during this season is that Advent isn't just about, oh, yeah, the baby came and we get to open presents, but that God made a promise and he kept it, even though it took a really long time. And Advent calls this response forth from us year after year. It calls us to remember that God always keeps his promises, even if it takes a long time. And adults, this is the bonus part for you, even if it looks different than our expectations. And so appropriately, this first week of Advent, we focus our vision in on hope. Now, hope and waiting are inextricably bound together, right? To hope is to wait. To wait is to hope. Now, in college, my second major, I studied Spanish for a long time. And to kind of work on my skills, I went to Ecuador and I lived with some missionaries to do some work for the Nazarene church there. And, and I lived with a family trying to, you know, master the language, right, as if that's possible. And the thing about language, if any of you have learned a second language in here, um, you make mistakes all the time. And sometimes they're really funny. You're like, oh, I can't believe you said that. That's so embarrassing. Other times it's mortifying and you want to crawl in a hole. Okay, so when we lived in Italy, I went to the market just trying to order some kale. I was making a soup. Okay, I need some kale. So I go to my veggie guy because there was a veggie guy, and I said, "Hey, I need in Italian. I need some kale." And he looks at me with like, "Oh, okay." And he takes me to this other vendor, and I walk up, and there are like slabs of meat hanging from hooks, and I'm thinking, "I see no leafy greens. Where be the kale?" Right. And it turns out if you say cavallo, it means kale. But if you say cavallo, it means horse meat. <laughs> and that wasn't going to my soup, so. But that's what happens with language. You make mistakes because the words are tricky and you emphasize it differently and whatever. And one of the words in Spanish that would always get me kind of confused or mixed up was the word esperar. Now, the word esperar is uh, an important word because it has a dual meaning. It means both to hope and it means to wait. Now, when I was just a young, ignorant college kid, I was like, ah, that's dumb. Why would it be like that? You know, they need two words like us Americans. Uh, but if you think about it, the words hope and wait are so inextricably connected that it's so fitting that they would share a word, is it not? To hope is to wait. And I think all of us can recall seasons in our life where we were doing that very thing. We were waiting and we were hoping. We were waiting and we were hoping. Maybe it was we were waiting and hoping for a child. After years and years of struggles, we were waiting and we were hoping. Or perhaps we were waiting and we were hoping for someone's heart to finally come around after a long estrangement. 
or perhaps we were waiting and we were hoping for a new future to open up. Dear God, let there be a change, a new job, a new home. We wait and we hope. Or perhaps, and many of you can identify with the waiting and the hoping of a safe return from deployment. We wait and we hope. It's connected. And this hope-filled waiting, it's not foreign to the story of God. And I'm not just talking about the coming of Jesus. If you look through the entire story of Scripture, there is story after story of people who are waiting and hoping, waiting and hoping for God to act. Just like we talked about this summer with Abraham and Sarah. They waited and they hoped. God promised. He said, hey guys, I'm going to make you into this great nation. And Abraham's like, awesome. I have zero kids and I'm super old. So how are we going to do that? Right? And God made this promise and repeatedly reminded them of it. But do you remember how long it was between the promise and the baby? Decades. It was a long time of waiting and hoping for God to act. And then the story of Hannah. Do you remember Hannah? She longed for a son and just no, no son came. And so she finally, she went to the temple and she fell on the steps of the temple in utter despair. And she's weeping and Eli, the priest, comes out, not a very insightful guy. And he goes, woman, it's too early in the morning to be that drunk. And she says, I'm not drunk. I'm heartbroken. I just want a child. And Eli says to her, the Lord has heard your prayer. Go on home. And she goes home, and lo and behold, within a year, she has a son, and that son is Samuel, and he becomes the uh, greatest prophet of Israel and anoints King David. She waited, and she hoped, and God answered. But the stories of waiting and hoping, just they don't just revolve around babies, right? Think about the people of Israel. They go to Egypt following Joseph. They live there happily for a while until a king arose who knew not of Joseph. And they were enslaved for 400 years, crying out to God, waiting and hoping for God to deliver them. And only in Exodus 3, after 400 years, does the bush finally burn. And the Lord speaks to Moses and says, I have heard the cries of my people and I am ready to act. They waited and they hoped for a really long time. You see, all these stories are united by this ever-present undercurrent of waiting and hoping, waiting and hoping, leaning forward in anticipation of God's promise to be kept. But here's the thing. Waiting is hard, and we don't always do it very well, do we? Tommy has learned in our 11 and a half years of marriage, I am not a good waiter. I'm just not. I'm not a good waiter. It's a character flaw. And uh, we've been working on our basement for a long time, and there's all these projects that we need to get done. And I don't have a lot of skills. I'm real, like, willing to help, but I'm not very skilled, okay? I've told you, this is my only gig. If this doesn't work out, I got nothing. And so uh, he does all those things. But if I get, sometimes he has his own timetable, and I really want a task to be done. And so I will, this is so wicked of me, I will begin the project, inevitably almost ruin it, And then he's like, okay, fine, I'll come along and help you. It's a great way to get the ball rolling. It truly is, right? (laughs) Healthy marriage tip for you. I'm a bad waiter. I don't want to wait. I have an agenda, and I want it done, and I want it done now, right? Waiting is so hard. Now, it's one thing to be a poor waiter and mess up a house project like me, but it's another thing to wait poorly, to wait badly, and find you and your people, your nation, 
mired in devastation, the total loss of your temple, the whole shebang. And that's where we're going to find ourselves today in the text that we are going to read. Isaiah 64. You can turn there now if you'd like to. Um, Isaiah is a tricky book. And there's lots of stuff in it that we read during the season of Advent for, you know, in chapter 9 and chapter 11, all these things. But here comes chapter 64, and it's confusing. You see, this passage that's assigned to us today comes at the very end of the book. And the people of Israel have sinned, and they have sinned good, okay? They have been so disobedient to God. God has called them and says, come and be a light to the nations. Come and participate in my mission of redemption. And they're like, eh, we got better things to do. And there are consequences to their perpetual disobedience. They end up in exile. They get dragged off to another country under pagan rule for a really long time. And in our text, the exiles, having been in Babylon for like 70 years, are brought back to the promised land. And what do they find? But devastation. The, the, the country is devastated. The temple is in shambles. And see, the loss of the temple was particularly devastating because for them, that place, that building, was the physical location of God's presence. That place was the place where heaven and earth intersected. And they walk and they discover that there is not a stone left upon a stone. And they are in utter despair. So it's a heap of rubble. And they're asking, where are God's promises now? In fact, actually, where is God now? And so we're going to read this story starting in verse 1. The cry of the people, devastated at a loss, waiting and hoping for God to act, but frankly, feeling pretty pointless. So let's read together. Verse 1, it says this. Israel speaking to God. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who waits for those, who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways, but you were angry and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and you have delivered us into the hand of iniquity. Yet, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. So do not be exceedingly angry, O oh Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Thanks be to God. Now, this is a lament, guys. It's a cry of anguish. And it's not particularly logical because it bounces back and forth. At one point, they accept the blame for their bad choices. And then they turn around and blame God. They say, because you hid, we transgressed. It's your fault, God. Now, logical or not, it's this gut-wrenching cry from the pit, this expression of despair and hopelessness. It's a real cheery Advent read, I think, actually, right? Now, I imagine that all of us have at one point in our life or another found ourselves in that gut-wrenching pit during various seasons, wounded and weary from the consequences of our sins or 
wounded and weary from the consequences of the sins of others that have leached over into our own lives, right? I mean, who hasn't shouted at the heavens and said, God, would you just tear open the heavens and come down? Would you just come down and heal? Would you just come down and rectify? Would you just come down and bring justice for once? Would you just come down and restore? And so Israel, as they sit in their forlorn pit, they cry out to God and they say, God, would you tear open the heavens and just come on down? But this isn't just some melodramatic cry shouted from the heavens. Oh, tear open the heavens. But rather, it's a call to God for him to remember. Remember what you've done in the past, God. And for Pete's sake, do it again. And do it quickly, would you? Now, in Exodus, remember how the people, they were slaves and they get delivered and they go through the Red Sea and it's so great. And God calls them and says, come to the mountain of Sinai. I am going to come on down and I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to tell you how to live. And so the people of Israel, they gather around Mount Sinai and they're waiting for God. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, whoosh, smoke falls and there's thunder and there's lightning. And the people are terrified because God has torn open the heavens and he has come down. Like it is a super dramatic tear open the heavens kind of moment, right? And it's beautiful. And then, you know, a few generations later in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, King Solomon is on the throne. The son of David, he gets to build the temple. And it's extraordinary. It's the most spectacular temple that Israel has ever seen. And it's like the pinnacle of Israel. They have the power. They have the prestige. They are wealthy. And they are dedicating this table, this temple to God. And so they're all standing around just in worship. And, and King Solomon has done all these sacrifices and they're listening to the prayer. And they're waiting for God to respond. And this is what it says. It says, when Solomon had ended his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed all the offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw that the fire had come down and the glory of the Lord was on the temple, they bowed down to the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and they gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And so you hear these stories and we realize that when the people of God ask God to rip open the heavens and come down, they have something very specific in mind, don't they? They are crying out for the good old days. Say, God, remember what you did in Exodus? Do it again. Remember what you did in 2 Chronicles? Do it again. Come on down. But the thing about the good old days, they're never quite as good as people remember. You see, in both encounters, these sky-rending God-come-down moments, the obedience that follows is pretty short-lived. See, in Exodus, the sky's ripped open and God comes down. Woo, it's amazing. Within a few chapters, the people have melted their earrings to make a cow to worship. Okay? The obedience didn't last long. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, after God has descended on the temple in this mighty way, within a generation, the kingdom has not only fallen, it has split, and there is unfaithfulness on both sides. The kingdom will never be the same. Disobedience within a generation. The good old days are not quite as good as we remember. You see, our memory can trick us. It can skew our vision of both the past and the present. It can misshape our vision. And it can even malform our longings and our desires for the future. You see, when you read this text about 
Isaiah in light of Israel's history and you understand their experience of God's intervention, of God breaking into history in really dramatic ways, you can hear their misshapen longing. They want that again. They want the drama, like bring the fire, God. They want the glory again. They want the power and the prestige. They want the kingdom again. Their hope has been misshapen and malformed by their own sin-sick desire instead of a humble submission to God as king. And so in chapter 65 of Isaiah, after Israel has laid out this lament saying, do it again, God, do it again, God says to them, you know, I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that didn't call my name. I held out my hand all day long to rebellious people who walked in a way that is not good, following their own devices. God says to them, guys, I've been here the whole time. I have been extending my hand to you. I have been ready to be found. Not hiding like some childish game. I held out my hand until my arm got tired. But no, you didn't take it. You are a rebellious people. And so to their demand for the good old days, the fire falling from heaven, the the heavens being torn open, God responds like this in in chapter 65 or 17. He says, guys, mm -mm. I'm about to create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things, they shall not be remembered or come to mind. And the passage goes on to describe God's restorative purposes for creation, but not in the way they expect it. It's a new thing, not a repeat of the past. Something new is needed. And so you see this, God making this promise, saying, guys, I'm going to do it. I'm going to act. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to break into history. And you think, okay, cool, awesome, about that. Tuesday's looking great. Work for you, God? 400 years, at least, between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New A long time to wait. Silence. Waiting and hoping, waiting and hoping for that advent. And you know what? Waiting is hard. And when the waiting goes on and on, it's all too easy for our hopes and our longings to begin to be misshapen by our sin-sick hearts. So misshapen that when God does act, We miss it because our eyes have been trained to be looking for something else entirely. And so Israel, the people that cried out, God, would you tear up in the heavens and come down? When God answered, they missed it. And not because he didn't answer, because he did. He always does. You see, in Mark chapter 1, it's been centuries. God has been silent And in Mark chapter 1, he begins the story of the gospel. And Mark's gospel is so fun. It doesn't start with like Bethlehem and donkeys and angels and all the fun things from Christmas. Mark starts with crazy old John the Baptist, the guy that eats bugs. And he's down at the river. He's baptizing people. And you think, why is this the beginning of the story? But here he comes, Jesus, walking down to the river Jordan. And the text says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up from the water, hear this, he saw the heavens torn apart 
the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven and says, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. Their prayer was answered. The heavens were torn open, and God came down. But their eyes were looking for something different. Through the rending of the sky, God broke through. He came in the flesh of Jesus. God kept his promise, even though it took a long time, and even though it didn't look like what they expected. But they didn't see it because their eyes were looking for something else. They didn't see it because their hopes had been misshapen by their own agenda, by their own desires. And so they no longer had eyes to see what God was doing, a new thing in Christ. You know, and even the disciples, those poor guys, they're walking along with Jesus as the book of Mark continues. They're walking with Jesus and he's teaching them and they still don't get it. They still don't understand that God is doing a new thing. Their vision and their hopes and their longings were misshapen as well. They were still hanging their hat on the temple. See, they walked along in chapter 13 and said, Jesus, look at this temple. It's so magnificent. Isn't it great? And Jesus says, really, guys, in a few generations, this thing will be nothing but a pile of rubble. God is no longer acting in this way. God is doing a new thing. And he goes on to tell them how the Son of Man will come in his glory for the second advent and how all of creation will experience it. But here's the kicker. And much like the first advent, Jesus says to them as they're thinking, oh, when is this going to come, this new thing that God is doing? He says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So beware. Keep alert, for you do not know when that time will come. <sighs> waiting. <laughs> and waiting is hard. So how do we, these people, us, as we celebrate this come, this Advent, this first Advent, and we anticipate this second, as we live into that tension of this second coming, how do we wait well? Instead of letting the wait misshape and malform our hearts, as we fidget impatiently letting our desires and our timetables drive the agenda as we enter together this season of advent how do we practice spirit breathed deeply trusting waiting well i think there's three things that will guide us this morning and i very rarely give you three things so you better write them down right <laughs> season of advent we need to wait hopefully not hopelessly in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is talking to a church in Corinth, and he says, and this is from the message, he goes, Every time I think of you, and I think of you often, I thank God for your lives of free and open access to God, given by Jesus. There is no end to what has happened in you. It is beyond speech. It is beyond knowledge. The evidence of Christ has been clearly verified in your lives. Just think. You don't need a thing. You've got it all. All God's gifts are right in front of you as you wait expectantly for our master Jesus to arrive on the scene for the finale. And not only that, but God himself is right alongside you to keep you steady and on track until things are wrapped up by Jesus. God, who got you started in this spiritual adventure, shares with us the life of his son, our master Jesus, and he will never give up on you. Never forget that. So why can we wait hopefully instead of hopelessly? Because God has given us everything we need to live faithfully. 
God's gifts are right in front of us as we wait for that coming kingdom of God to burst in. And not only that, but what did Paul say? He says, God himself is right alongside you to keep you steady, to keep you on track until things are wrapped up in Jesus. What great hope. We are not consigned to wander around aimlessly through life, wondering if anything really matters. We are given a purpose and we are given hope as we follow our leader step by step. And we're not alone because God has promised to stand alongside us and guide us faithfully on the journey. So as we trust that knowledge, we find this magnificent hope based not on advantageous circumstances, but based on the faithful character of God who keeps his promises no matter how long it takes. We wait hopefully, not hopelessly. But also as we wait for Advent, we wait hopefully We also wait peacefully, not anxiously. You know, it's one thing to wait, hopefully, but it's a whole other ballgame to be peaceful about it and not anxious. When Jojo was little, she had this horrible little book about a little boy taking the bus to school. And on every page, this kid would have this meltdown about the bus being delayed because he thought he was going to miss school. And so, for example, the bus, he was watching his, he was looking at his watch and the bus was coming late. And he's like, no, we're going to be late. And the book would say, oh, but just in time, here comes the bus. And he'd get on the bus and, oh, my word, I forgot my lunchbox. Run back and get it and go back in and just panic all around. And they're driving the bus and the kid's finally happy. And then, boom, train comes. And the kid panic mode, no, we're going to be late for school. And the train finally passes. He's like, oh, go on. And then they pull up to Tim's house. Tim has a project he's carrying, and it's like big, and and the kid yells at the window, come on, Tim, you're dragging us down. Get on the bus. And this kid is just panicking. He probably has some kind of disorder. He is so anxious about the bus. But on every page, it says, the kid was panicking, but just in time, the bus came. Just in time, the train moved on. Just in time, Tim lumbered onto the bus. Just in time. Now, the word in scripture for that exact thing is the word kairos, at just the right time. It's the word you use when you're going to harvest something and the crops are finally ripe. It's kairos. It's time to harvest. And in scripture, they use that word a little differently. It says in Romans, for while we were still weak, at just the right time, kairos, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time, God sent his son to break the powers of sin and death and to introduce the kingdom. So can we not trust that at just the right time, he will do it again? At just the right time, he will send his son to usher in the kingdom. And so we need not be like that worry wart on the bus, panicking about the timing. But rather we trust in the kairos of God that he at just the right time will act and he will reign fully. We wait peacefully, not anxiously, because of that promise. But finally, we also wait actively and not passively. In Mark, we read a part of this already. In Mark 13, uh, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he says, the exact hour, nobody knows, not even the angels, only the Father. So keep a sharp lookout, for you don't know the timetable. It's like a man who takes a trip. He leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each assigned a task and commanding the gatekeeper to take to stand watch. So stay at your post watching. 
You have no idea when the homeowner is returning, whether evening, midnight, cockcrow, or morning. You don't want him showing up unannounced with you asleep on the job. So I say to you, and I'm saying it to all, stay at your post and keep watch. Stay at your post. Stick with your assigned task. You don't want to be found sleeping on the job. We talked about this a little bit last week, that we are called, as we are waiting for that coming kingdom, to not just sit on our hands, but to actively live into that coming kingdom. Remember, Inauguration Day is on its way, so let's live into the new administration. Let's live into that coming kingdom of God. We take all that we have been given, like Paul said in Corinthians, and we put the time that we have to good use, living as citizens of that kingdom right now that the world might experience the light of Christ in the midst of darkness. And so this Advent, my prayer for all of us is that we would learn to wait well, hopefully, not hopelessly, and peacefully, not anxiously, and actively instead of passively, as we continue to pray, thy kingdom come, Lord, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And may we be a people that is marked by trust. Trust in a God who kept his promise the first time. And so we trust that he will keep it again. Come, Lord Jesus, come and reign forevermore. So let's conclude with a song of hopeful worship. God, as we lean into this season of Advent, we celebrate and give thanks for the fact that you kept your promise. You sent a son in Jesus. But Lord, we don't want to hang out by the manger. We want to recognize that you are a God who will keep your promise again to send your son at just the right time. And so Lord, as we live in this season and we we practice this discipline of waiting and trusting and hoping, would you help us to wait well, to wait in hope, to wait in peace, and to wait actively working for your kingdom even as we wait with all of the gifts that you have given us. Lord, help us to be faithful citizens of your coming kingdom. And may we wait in eager anticipation for you to keep your promise, even if it takes a long time, and even if it looks different than we expect. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you extend your hands to receive the benediction? Beloved, Christ Church. May you enter into this season of Advent full of hope as you trust in the God who keeps his promises, even if it takes a long time, and even if it looks different than we expect. May you walk in hope and peace and get to work for the kingdom. Go in action and go in peace. You are dismissed. Amen.